You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Uh, hi, I'm Mats Villander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Just over halfway through Wimbledon, and it's been an absolute cracker so far. Rafael Nadal out in perhaps the biggest upset Wimbledon's ever known, Andy Murray's still alive, and Roger Federer targeting a return to number one. In episode five, we review the tournament so far. Catherine picks a new men's champion, and we have a heart-to-heart with Mark Philippoussis. So we're already into the second week of Wimbledon. We're sitting here on the second Monday. It's just finished for the day. In fact, it's been rained off. So it's been a bit of a frustrating day, really, hasn't it, compared to the rest of the tournament so far, Catherine? We've had a couple of big matches complete. Roger Federer is through. Well, it wasn't without a bit of a fright today. Uh, Andy Murray has been held over till tomorrow. He's going to be the first match on court number one at an earlier time. The, the tournament is basically behind schedule. But, I mean, if we look at the tournament as a whole so far, week one, for me, has been the best I've ever experienced at this tournament. I think this is the, the 12th time I've been here working here, and it's been, it's been fantastic. What have you thought of it? Yeah, there's been just the right number of upsets, just the right... We've still got just enough big names and top seeds left in, but, you know, we've had a smattering of sensational matches and and uh, eye-catching results and um, I agree and there's some really there's just some really interesting stories in there aren't they you know you've got Brian Baker and David Goffin and people like that that just sort of every part of the draw is sprinkled with a bit of gold dust isn't it, it's, it I agree I think it's been um, just really interesting there's something to catch your eye everywhere and the king of all stories the upset that had us all completely flabbergasted was Rafael Nadal going out, wasn't it, on last Thursday? I mean, it was one of those where were you moments. Oh, yeah. Where were you? What were you doing? I was watching thinking, good God, can we postpone the podcast recording so that I don't have to swallow my pride. Uh, Yes, well, thanks for reminding me. Yes, what was it you said on the eve of the tournament? Who was going to win the tournament? What was that again? Uh, Rafael Nadal. That was it. Uh, Catherine predicted Rafael Nadal would win the tournament. And who was it you thought would win the women's tournament? Find me someone that that predicted Lucas Russell to beat uh, Rafael Nadal in round two. Find me the man. I've got my hand in the air, listeners. Um... (laughs) No, I, I mean, it was it was one of those extraordinary moments. And I'm working for uh, BBC Radio 5 Live this week, and my colleague Alistair Eakin, I, I didn't actually get to see the match live, I, but I, I listened to it. And my colleague Alistair Eakin came up with one of the best match point commentaries I think I've ever heard. And it was just, it was the astonishment in his voice that, that really captured the moment and made you just pause for a minute and think, did that really happen? Has this guy, who's a hundred in the world, who hasn't even been able to qualify successfully for tournaments, who couldn't even qualify in Eastbourne, he's just come out and thrashed Rafael Nadal in the final set. Made him look on the so ordinary, court at Wimbledon. didn't he? Made him look so ordinary. He just knocked him off the court. Yeah, it it was unreal. It was like it was like I've heard. Uh, for me, the match it, it most reminded me of was Safin beating Sampras, thrashing Sampras in the final of mm. the US Open in 2000. It was like you were playing, a, Safin was playing a different sport 
it was like there were there were shots that you know just aren't played by sort of normal human beings. <laughs> I, I would probably go with the Philippoussis well, one. Well, yeah, Cyprus. I thought you were going to. Of course, we're going to we're going to hear from Mark Philippoussis in our exclusive interview here on the tennis podcast uh, fairly soon, and he will talk about that match and how he felt on the eve of it and. Um, his mindset going out into it and, and you will hear that, that he just thought to heck with it, I'm going to just mm. hit everything and that felt what, like what Lucas Russell was going through ahead of that match, particularly once they closed the roof and they came out for a fifth set and it does change the atmosphere doesn't it, it was un- indoors and he just thought, you know what this could be my one big moment in my career and I'm not going to waste it and I think that's from what I, I can't claim to have seen you know that much of his tennis over the however many years he's been playing but that seems to be his policy uh most of the time to gamble and go for it so he plays a low percentage game I think it was just the perfect storm of you know adrenaline and situation and being on centre court having the roof closed that just all came together and meant that that meant that everything was going in rather than I'm sure and you know when he played the next round everything wasn't going in he carried on going for it exactly (laughs) he certainly can't be accused of that no and why change a a winning game he stuck with with the same game it's just hey Philip Kohlschreiber now is suddenly still alive down there he you know it was an interesting interview after Andy Murray's match uh, against Marcus Bagdatis and and he was asked well the draw's opened up for you now with Rafael Nadal out and he said no it hasn't it's opened up for Philip Kohlschreiber who has <laughs> slotted into that position in the draw absolutely. which was left by Rafael Nadal or Brian Baker yeah absolutely they are the players that are going to benefit most immediately from from mm. that but suddenly it is an interesting draw down there isn't it because you've got Kohlschreiber against Baker at the bottom if you move up you've got Songer against Marty Fish Songer who's a set down against he is. Marty Fish and then you've got the good. Andy Murray against Chilich match with Murray leading a set and a break there and we still haven't even got underway with David Ferrer against one Martin Del Potro in the other fourth round match in the bottom half of the draw. Who do you suspect is going to come through these four matches? I think Murray will make the final. I really do. Wow. Yeah. I, I kind of I kind of think it's easy to talk in hyperbole uh, with Murray around Wimbledon time. It's easy to make sweeping sort of, oh, it has to be the one. But I do think that... I've heard so many people analyse, you know, Murray's chances of winning a slam um, over the past two or three years, and almost everybody that talks any sense has said, "Look, let's face it, he needs a slice of luck. It's extremely unlikely over best of five sets he's going to be able to get past three, two or three of these top guys." And I, I do just think this is that slice of luck. I know he's still got to get through a couple of difficult ma- matches before before the uh, Nadal being out has any impact on him but I think this is it and I think I think he has to make the final here Wow, that's very interesting it takes me back to 2002 when Sampras and Agassi both lost early on and the Daily Mirror ran their headline which was come on Timbo if you choke now we'll never forgive you it reminds me of uh, Australian Open 2002 Two, when Henman was the top seed left in, everybody lost. And he lost to Jonas Bjorkman. And he lost Bjorkman. to Jonas Bjorkman That's in right. the fourth After round. After beating Greg Rosetsky <laughs> in the third round, it was all there opening up for Tim Henman. And it didn't happen. But we do recall, I mean, some of Tim's great moments were, were matches like it or runs like it he had at the French Open when it was out of nowhere. It does show the sort of pressure that is on Andy Murray yeah. that we are talking in these terms. Ooh. Because... It, you have to look at it. He is the highest-ranked player in the bottom half of the draw. On seeding now, he should get through to the final. I just hope he's not thinking like what I, I don't just think he said. Is. I just I really don't, I, think, I don't think I could cope with that if no, I was. But him. he's not, is he? he I he, certainly he, hope not. He knows, but he is—he is a thinker, isn't he? Somebody that, he that is does analyse things mm. a lot. He almost—he overthinks things. So he's I do worry that. about him. Don't worry, Catherine. It's going to be all right. <laughs> <laughs> he he's in control, and if he's not in control, he's got Ivan Lendl there, who is the poker player well, of the exactly. century. Have you seen the guy? He hasn't had a flicker of emotion in that player. Certainly box. not a flicker of a smile. That's no, for sure. uh, but that's what you need. Uh, that no, is what yeah. I think Andy Murray needs. Yeah, I think he looks face. up there and just thinks, "I'm in good hands." Yeah. 
Anyway, and I this don't time want to tomorrow mess with night, you. if uh, if Andy Murray's lost, delete the podcast. <laughs> all right, but we both think that Andy Murray is getting through to the final in the bottom half. Of the Are draw. you agreeing with it's, me? No, I do agree with you. It's a big ask. I think when Juan Martin Del Potro is dangerous, I think Chilich now is going to probably mount a little bit of a charge, but I don't think it's going to be enough against Murray in this form. I think. Del Potro is dangerous, but I also think Del Potro could come unstuck against David Ferrer. Mm. It's, it's an open match, yeah. that one. I, I am surprised that Songa is down against Marty Fish, but my word, if Songa gets knocked out as well, that would be <laughs> a real open door. And Marty Fish is a top a top player on this sort of surface as well, and he has beaten Murray before at Queen's. A, he's dangerous. A top player who says he's only 70% he, fit, though. He does say that. But, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think this is the one. This mm. is Murray's chance yeah. to get through to the final. Will he win the tournament? Well, we'll have a little look at the top half of the draw. It's It's still a long way away. Looking at that top half of the draw, Novak Djokovic has just won moments ago. He's beaten Viktor Trojicki. He would play long, against it? either Richard Gasquet or Florian Meyer. Meyer has won the first set in that one and looks uh, certainly the favourite. Roger Federer, goodness me, today he had a, a, a couple of scares, didn't he? He had to go off the court because he was feeling, uh, I think it was, um, was it a groin strain or a back problem? I, I don't think there's, but I certainly haven't heard official word. I, I, there was mutterings about a back problem. He, he did Which say he has I think with before, he's had he? some sort of spasm I know yeah. because he said it was it was scaring him at the time mm. and he was in real pain and uh, and he f- he did wonder how bad is this mm. and he, he actually apologised to his opponent because it's so rare for Federer to have mm. on court treatment and delay things he actually had to go off the court but um, I still think we're going to end up with the semi final the dream semi final really here at Wimbledon which would be Djokovic against Federer what yeah. do you think. I completely agree. Hey, who picked Federer, uh, Federer and Djokovic to get through to that stage? In fact, who picked Djokovic for the title? I think you're wrong, though. I still think you're wrong. Who's going to win the title? <sighs> oh, I think, it's going to, I think it's going to be a Federer-Murray final. I'll say that. And I think it's 50-50 from there. I really... That's, that's I think, toss of a coin. Mm. Uh, but I really think that... I agree it's going to be Federer-Djokovic semi. And I just... I just think I think Federer is I think Federer is going to have him on on grass. Do you think Federer is going to win the title, or is Murray going to? No, because I can imagine time, having this it? conversation on Saturday evening. Are you predicting Andy Murray for the title? No, We're sitting here. It's Monday no. night. I want to know Go who's going to win the why title. Why not? Why not? I've already made one. One. Well, one what do you think? What do you genuinely think? Don't be pressured. I think. I think that it's going to be a Murray Federer final, and I genuinely think that's going to be fifty-fifty. I. Don't sit on the fence. Who's going to win the title? Murray. There you have it. Uh, Catherine Whittaker has said at 8.25 on Monday evening, second Monday, that Andy Murray will win the title for Great Britain. You get more glory with the with the risky, slightly out there predictions. Yeah, well, that one's certainly out there. <laughs> Let's have a look at the women's draw. Well, he could win the title, couldn't he? Let's be honest. Hang on, having, you're sticking with, still sticking with Djokovic. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Don't mess about me. <laughs> Right, let's have a look at the women's draw because you were very, very much behind oh, a certain Maria Sharapova who got dismissed today by Sabine Lezicki with a second serve ace. Second serve ace on match point. That's how to finish a match. And suddenly that top half of the draw, which we were expecting a quarter final of Sharapova against Kleisters, has become Lezicki against Kerber. Kerber. Wow. So that's a, a bit of a turn-up. Mm. It is anybody's in mm. that top half of the draw. We are going to get a women's finalist out of Sabine Lezicki, Angelique Kerber, Agnieszka Radvanska, or Maria Kirilenko. Mm, it's a it's bit of a be, surprise, isn't it? It's going to be Radvanska, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right, actually. I, I'm, the only one reservation I would have is Lezicki, because I mm. think she has it in her to knock all well, of these players the off game, the court. Definitely. I think she can just she can dominate. Hold her nerve. And I was impressed with how she held her nerve against Sharapova today. Second serve ace to She's steal the She's got the, the personality match. for it, too. Yeah. But I suspect that she's she can be also erratic if she throws mm. in a a rough performance against Radvanska. I yeah. think Radvanska's going to just Radvanska annoys people, doesn't she? She's a bit like Murray. She's a bit like the Murray of the the women's game. Annoys she's people with her game, you understand, yeah. not with her personality. <laughs> we think she's lovely. Uh, bottom half of the draw: Serena Williams is through, and mm. she beat the player who got the golden set. Yeah. Uh, in Yaroslava Shvedova in the previous round Shvedova won a complete set without ever losing a point against in it. the French Open finalist That's as well right. not against never um, heard nobody. of that before in my case no. and then I wandered into the uh, the Five Live um, green room where we sit and have copious amounts of tea and talk talk about 
things. And Jeff Tarango said, Bill Scanlon. Yeah. He's the last man. 1983. Off the top of his head. Off the top of his head, he said... Bill Scanlon, because he used to coach me, and he told me that I'm the only player in history ever to win a set without losing a point. And we looked it up, and within about 10 minutes, we got official word through that he was absolutely right. That's insane. And uh, Scanlon was, in fact, interviewed yesterday by the New York Times and talking about it and said he was actually pleased when Shvedova managed to to do this because it proved how hard it is, and it reminded everybody that it was him who did it first. (laughs) So, anyway, Shvedova, unluckily for her, came into run into Serena Williams. Good match, but she lost. 7-5 7-5 in the third and uh, Serena and this is the match of the round isn't it this is probably the match of the tournament yeah. left I would say is going to be Serena Williams against Petra Kvitova which I think Kvitova is going to win Serena no could, way be honest Serena hasn't looked good no but I've picked her for the title yeah she's but gonna, that was before you'd seen her play this no no no, no. she's still going to win gonna... the title I disagree. Yeah, well, you said Sharapova, so I'm not really interested in what you say. Uh, what actually, Kvitova, I saw the match. I covered that match, and for a set and a half, she played abysmally against Francesca Schiavone. It was poor stuff. But then third set, she was fantastic. So moving down, we are disagreeing, as usual. Serena Williams, I say, will beat Kvitova. You're going for the defending champion. Mm-hmm. And then the, I think that the one who could throw a spanner in the works is Tamira Pasek. I was I sitting alongside Barbara Shett, her countrywoman, today, and she thinks she's got a real chance against Victoria Azarenka in the next round. She's one of the few female grass court specialists, isn't she? She really yeah. is. She, she won just comes born, alive. She? she did win Eastbourne, yeah. And so she's won nine matches in a row now on grass. Mm. And she does right old crack, doesn't she? She certainly does, yeah. And uh, she won very easily today, straight sets, two and one, something like that, two mm. and two. Uh, tough old draw with Azarenko because she looked very impressive. Have you seen the way Azarenko sticks her headphones in when in the sort of entrance to the yeah. court, and she's actually rapping and dancing in the sort of anteroom like, waiting look, to go on to send the court. Look how relaxed I am, everyone. Yeah. I tell you what, if I was her opponent, that would freak me out. Yeah. I always think the same thing as well when we've seen those Federer and Nadal finals over the years. I used to love it when Rafa would wear his sleeveless shirt and you got him looking like a caveman, sort of with no, no jacket on at all, sort of looking as if he wants to just club somebody over the head with his racket. He's dancing up and down and then you've got Federer wearing what looks like a smoking jacket as if he's about to just wander <laughs> into a sort of Monte Carlo casino <laughs> and place a couple of bets and um, anyway I love those finals between those two because this, the vivid contrast yeah, between the yeah. two I like Azarenka personally I do too yeah, I, think I think she's, she's great value. for the game I think she's the real deal I don't think she's a one slam wonder one one stint at number one wonder I think she's going to be around for a while and, and why has she had no publicity keep... this week I mean she, nobody's really talked about it yet weird it's true semi-finalist last year wasn't she so it's not Mm. like she's and I mean she was the dominant player for the first three months of this year you know so as a ranker I I suspect she'll quite enjoy that though quietly creep Mm. through but I'm, I mean, that is anybody's match for me, her against Pashek. I'd probably go for Azarenka just based on experience. Um, I don't think Pashek's got any fear, though, has she? No. She's, I don't think she's somebody that would crumble under the pressure. So who's going to win the title, Catherine? The women's title. draw, now that your pick has gone. This is really tough. I have to say this is really tough because I don't think it's going to be Serena. Um, so I'm looking at... It is. I'm looking at Azarenka. I'm looking at Radovanska. But... And I'm looking at this. I think if so, you're going to go on about four players. Yeah, this is this is really tough. I think Radvanska Lisicki semi with Radvanska to come through and uh, Azarenka to come through from the bottom half. So essentially, I'm picking an Azarenka Radvanska final. Go on then, Azarenka. That'd be interesting. Would be interesting. They're good friends as well, aren't they? Well, they were. Apparently, they're not anymore. (laughs) Really? A bit of frostiness lately. Yeah. Oh yeah. All the gossip. One or two frosty handshakes, wow. but um, that's the gossip I hear anyway. It might be complete nonsense. Right, from that little awkward moment, we'll go on and talk about the 2003 finalist here, uh, Mark Philippoussis, who is our special guest on the tennis podcast this week. And um, Philippoussis is a player that, that I've known probably for about 15 years since he very first started on, on the tennis circuit. He's He's a big friendly giant, in all honesty. I mean, he always has been. He's, he, he's such a Goliath mm. on the court. I, I, always, I remember when I first saw him take to the court 
Um, this was even before he beat Sampras at the Australian Open, and I saw him come out onto the court, and it looked like an otherworldly sight. It looked He didn't look human. He was so much bigger than... He played Sampras at Wimbledon. That's where I saw him, and he was so much bigger than him mm. that... I, I was looking at him like he was some sort of monster out one of the Sinbad movies that I used to watch as a kid, and um, and 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 he played the sort of tennis that was from another planet as well. And that day, and I've said it in one of our earlier podcasts, when he beat Sampras that day, I think we all looked at him and thought, "This is the guy. This mm. is the guy who's going to dominate tennis for the next decade." And uh, and I think it's a bit of a shame that he didn't quite fulfil that level of potential mm. uh, he's uh, much of it is because of injury he has had the most awful Terrible time, with, time with knee injuries and in our interview he he takes you through them he takes you through the the agonies and the the um disappointments that he suffered but um you work with him now on the atp champions tour he, he's he's on the circuit a lot now i know that you uh, you you were at a couple of events with him earlier this year which is where you got to speak to him where, where was that last tournament that you got I to speak to him uh, we did a couple of events back to back together one in Medellin in Colombia and then uh, one in Sao Paulo Brazil mm. and it was actually in Sao Paulo that um, we had a chance to chat and uh, he was fascinating he really. is isn't uh, he yeah. he really opened up to you in the, in the interview yeah. and, uh, and, and laid it all out there his, his heart and soul and, and um, personally I think he's a lovely guy yeah he's got a lot of perspective now he's had a lot of time to reflect in, uh, on his career and um yeah, you, you can hear in the interview how reflective and how reflective he is on it all, and, and uh, yeah, it's re- I think it's I think he's got some interesting things to say. Well, you can hear for yourself because here he is on the tennis podcast. It's the 2003 Wimbledon runner-up, Mark Philippoussis. You know, I'm very very excited to be part of the, the senior tour. For me, it's perfect because. I love tennis. You know, I fell in love with it as a kid. I miss it, and I love playing. And this tour is all about going back to that and just playing tennis and having fun on the court. Um, you know, it's very easy along the way to get involved and then make it a job. And then, you know, with all the politics involved, with all the sponsors and this and that. So it's just great to come out and then play these events with the guys that I was on the tour with, you know, and they're all great guys. And we do our programs. We have, you know, we go out dinners at night. We have breakfast together. It's, it's, you know, uh, it's very relaxing, but at the same time, being athletes, you still want to compete and still want to try and win. Um, let's face it, and that's the truth, but, um, but it's all in great spirit. And you've got a, in your personal life, you're working on a clothing line, haven't you? Yeah, this is something I've been working on for close to a year, and I have a business partner, and we're, we've been working, you know, really hard on it and, and learning a lot along the way. Um, it's a complete new venture of what I'm used to. Um, or as playing a sport then you know it's completely creating something which I love I've always loved doing that as a kid I always used to draw and always used to love creating things so yeah, it, it's been inside me and I've wanted to do this for, you know for five six years and I think and I think I know this is the perfect time for me to do something like this um, so we're actually you know launching the brand this month end of this month and super excited we start production next week so as soon as I get home production starts and um it's going to be an adventure, but I'm looking forward to it. You know, I'm looking forward to to waking up and having something to do. I got a little bored, to be honest. You know, I thought I might be content and happy with doing nothing and surfing every day, but it does get boring. You know, not having something to look forward to. I want to take you back to your junior day. Your junior days. You had a huge game, even as a junior. What did your dad used to say to you when you were junior? When you were junior, when when you went out to play? Well, I have so much respect for my father because he really, you know, he didn't play tennis competitively or, or, or professionally, but he played, you know, recreationally. But he, he was a very intelligent man and, and he knew what it took to become, uh, you know, uh, to get on the tour and to become professional. He knew you'd have to have weapons, you'd have to have a big game, you'd have to have something to hurt the others. Um, and it also make life easier for you. So whenever I trained, and we trained every single day, it was always to develop weapons. Um, you know, and and he would make me watch a lot of video of guys that he thought were the best of what they did. Andre Agassi with his returns, Ivan Lendl with his ground strokes, Stefan Edberg with his net plays, chip and charging and serve and volleying, Michael Stick on his serve, Boris Beck on his all round power game, you know, um, you know, Pete on his serve. There were you know, people everyone that did things so incredibly well. Miroslav Machia, the way he moved, that's why they called him the cat, you know. And um 
you just make me sit down and watch them and the best of the best of what they did and why were they the best and and I really believe he's just you know he was intelligent in the fact that he understood what I had to do in order to develop that game that would help me you know to get on the tour because there are a lot of great junior players growing up a lot of guys that won everything and they didn't make that transition because they didn't have those those weapons um, they were content and sitting back and rallying and winning junior tournaments but my dad knew and that that wasn't going to get him on the tour um, and the great thing about it is my dad never cared about my junior results he knew that he wanted, always wanted me to work on my game during those matches for the future um, where it did come into play and was important obviously was those junior you know, junior French Open junior Australian junior Wimbledon because that's where the sponsors watch and that was the opportunity where I was lucky enough to do well at junior Wimbledon where we got sponsors where I got sponsored by Phila and, and as soon as we had money because we couldn't afford to go out and play you know, qualifying for events or challenges my dad's like okay that's the last junior tournament we're playing you're going out and you're going to be playing qualifying for all the ATP tournaments now that's the last event and that was the last junior match I played he knew that's it done you know it wasn't even about that anymore I was lucky enough to get a sponsor and let's go let's um hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or on your smart TV in HD. Sounds great. There's genuinely nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere. And can I just sit and watch court says in Longland all day? You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. Try to make them the big league. And, and, um, and fortunately, thankfully... Um, I didn't grind, I didn't play a lot of challenges. I ended up, made that transition pretty quick and, and qualified for the tournament in Scottsdale. I made the final and my ranking dropped from, you know, jumped from 500 and something to like 115. And that's how everything started. Australian Open 1995, probably one of the most memorable matches for other people from your career. It's one of my earliest... 96? 96, was Against it? Pete? Against Pete, 90, yeah. 96. One of my earliest mm-hmm. significant tennis memories... It looked like you were from a different planet to any other tennis player that had, that had come before you, and you didn't look nervous. Were you nervous? Was that... You know what? I, actually, there's... People say you're in a zone, you know, you, there's you know, athletes or people talk about being in the zone and being completely in the moment, and even in life, no matter what you do, when you really feel like in the moment, you can look back six years from now and remember exactly what you're thinking at that time. And I was completely in the moment. Um, and uh, and aware of the situation, and I remember walking down the tunnel, and he was in front of me, you know. And as you're walking to go on that centre court, there's past champions on both sides, and I was looking at him like, all right, this is Pete Sampras, the number one guy in the world. And I remember thinking, shit, so what? I'm like, who cares? I mean, he's another player, and and I want to go out there, and I'm gonna just hit the shit out of the ball, you know. Um, I remember going out there and. I, to be honest, I wasn't nervous. I, I grew up on those courts. Melbourne was my hometown. It was a night match. The atmosphere was awesome. It was packed. And I don't know. I just I love I love those situations. For me, that's the reason why I play. Um, and yeah, I just I mean I I had nothing to lose. Let's be honest. No one expected a 19 year old Australian kid to beat number one player in the world. So what did I have to lose? So. Um, and uh, one thing I told myself is, you know, if I am going to lose this match, I'm going to 
lose it on my racket. You know, I'm going to lose it on my ground. And um, and uh, you know, I had um, I had good rhythm that night on my serve and my ground strokes, and in rallies just felt comfortable. It was like one of those matches where you just feel comfortable. It just um, it felt easy, you know. And did you feel life changed for you overnight? Were you suddenly recognised by everybody the next day? And you know what? Maybe maybe that did happen, but me, the personality I had at that stage, I didn't care about that. I didn't think about it. And to be honest, I don't know if I didn't want it, but I didn't even think about it. I didn't even care about that. You know, it's just... It was just... I was just doing what I love to do. As simple as that. So for me, it wasn't anything... You know, anything crazy happened. I'm like, yeah, I just beat the number one player in the world. It was a very proud moment for me. It was in front of my home crowd. It was, it was a great moment. It really was. The atmosphere was awesome. I remember the ball kids were just packed on the side of the court watching. So it was, it was a proud moment. It really was a proud moment. And it was, you know, thankfully I have a lot of proud moments on the court, and that was that was definitely one of them. And the next round, you lost to, to Mark Woodford. Yeah. Was that a tough pill to swallow? Was that like a bubble bursting almost? That was a wake-up call because, like I said, I was an immature 19-year-old, um, like an immature 35-year-old now. <laughs> but I was an immature 19-year-old that just didn't get it. You know, it's like just expected for myself to play the same way. And that was the last thing that was going to happen. But not only that, was I, you couldn't have gone from one player that was uh, in polar opposites. You know, you had Pete Sampras, who had an amazing power game, can do everything, to Mark Woodford, where he could only do a couple of things good, but he did it really good. But the fact that he was left-hander made it so much more tougher, and it was just completely weird, you know, from Pete to, to Woodford. And I expected to go out and hit aces and run around and smack forehand winners, and, and I, I didn't get fed the same power and, and the same shots. And it was just completely... You know, it was, it was, it was I definitely came back to earth really quickly and learnt a lot straight within a, a couple of days. You know, because you know how the press is in Australia. All of a sudden, uh, new hero. Oh my God, he's going to win the tournament. You know, um, his next generation and all this blah blah blah. And then I lose to Woodford, and they're like, Oh, I guess that he's crap now. You know. So that's normal, um, but I didn't care about that. It was more the fact that I was like, "What just what just happened?" It's like I beat number one player in the world, and I'm going to lose to Woodford, you know. And um, not that he's not a tough player, but let's face it, I expected to win, and everyone expected me to win. I've gone from playing a match where no one expected me to win to like, "Oh, it's going to kill him." He's you know, and he's in the quarterfinals. So um, it was it was you know definitely uh, it was an interesting uh, three days. You've got that match against Sampras, you've got US Open final, you've got... You were beating Sampras at Wimbledon before hurting your knee, I remember that very vividly, reaching the Wimbledon final 2003. Is it easy for you to pick out a most treasured achievement, or is that impossible for you? No, the two Davis Cup wins, for sure, because the first one, being in France in 99, we were playing on foreign soil, you know, in Nice, on clay, we didn't expect to win. Um, I came out and played two great singles matches, beating Grosjean and Peeling. Um, just played steady, you know. Um, and, you know, in a great arena, huge arena. I think it was like fifteen, or maybe 18,000 people, an indoor arena. And it was so loud. And, again, I was so in a zone. Like, I, you know, they were blowing horns in my ears. I did not even hear a thing, you know. Um, Nothing else mattered. I didn't. I didn't see a thing. When I play tennis, you know, normally people in Davis Cup matches or in matches, they look to their bench a lot. You know, um, it's, that, that was never me. Um, I just they can't help me. So I, I just did my thing on the court. And it was just about me. So I I never focused on the captain or the coach. I just I focused on the, and that ball for the whole weekend. And I was just you know I was in that zone. I was in that zone again. And. Um, and that was an incredible moment, you know, that. Um, also, 2003 Davis Cup when we beat Spain, that was incredibly special too. I can't say more special, but it was awesome because it was in Melbourne on my home soil and on grass. And the fact that I happened to win that last match to clinch it again uh, for Australia, but how I won it in five sets and I got injured and tore my pec muscle on the third set. And, you know, I was in a lot of pain and, and I didn't even know how to this day, you know, to win at six love 
felt like the whole set where it was in slow motion and I can even you know remember you know almost each point because it, it was every point was painful and somehow won the match and you know you know to win another Davis Cup you know it's rare to have that you, know, you watch so many Davis Cup matches and, and you're seeing them you know champions or the heroes being you know carried away off the court or on the court and winning that last match and how important it was and how incredible it is because it's not just for you it's for your your teammates your captain your coach your country there's a lot of pressure in davis cup and but it's also a beautiful thing that's what comes with the territory and the fact that i had that feeling twice is, is pretty rare you know it's rare to get you know you have some of the best players in the world number one in the world multiple grand slam winners that never get a chance to win the you know davis cup and i've been asked would i trade one of the davis cups for a grand slam and absolutely no way um, I wouldn't ch- you know, trade it at all. It was incredible, incredibly proud moment, and um, you know, my name is always going to be on that trophy. You know, so. taking that match against Sampras, let's say at the Australian Open, as almost a case study of the potential and power and ability you had just at the age of nineteen. Do you look back and and wonder why you achieved more, why you didn't achieve more, or? or I mean, obviously your injuries were around. Do you look back and think, oh, but if only, you know, if, it, no, if only... No, I don't look back, honestly. I, I, I'm not that person to look back. I believe, I strongly believe that I'm exactly where I am in my life because that's where I need to be and I'm exactly where I am because I needed to learn those lessons. Um, like I said, I... One thing I knew is I love tennis. I worked my ass off with my dad to become a tennis player. We worked before school after school in the dark I mean when it was so cold I had to wear beanies and gloves you know we worked hard you know I didn't nothing was given to us nothing was given to me and you know we came up came up from you know a very middle class modern you know uh, just a simple family so we worked you know our asses off and so nothing was given to me but the fact is too is tennis wasn't everything to me I didn't eat, sleep, breathe tennis. And that's the truth. That's a difference. When you look at these, these you know, multiple Grand Slam winners, the only thing I think about is tennis. They come off the court and they relax and they do what they have to do to be ready for that next match and to, to be ready to... How can they physically be 100% ready for that next tournament strong enough? Whether it's staying off the court and icing and doing therapy. My mind wasn't like that. I, weren't, I was riding motorbikes. I was... You know, snowboarding. I was jumping out of planes. I loved life, you know, and and that's that's who who I am still. Um, so I don't re- I don't regret a thing. Everything happened for a reason. There's certain times where when I when I first hurt myself against Pete, he was quarterfinals woman. I was up a set break point, and then I I hit a backhand that I've hit seven thousand times in my life, and happened to tear my cartilage. You can't explain that. I was warmed up. I wasn't cold. Um, there's other times maybe I got injured I could have been a lot physically you know definitely physically fitter and and you know that you, you can think of it that way but I mean shit if I sit here and think about what could have been done that's that's not me um, I wouldn't change anything at all that's that's a beautiful thing about life if you only have highs you can't appreciate like can't appreciate it when there is a high because you're just used to it you expect it you know and you kind of become spoiled so you need those lows and I've definitely had lows but those lows have been a blessing for me and now when I do have even a slight high I'm so appreciative of that Um, and that's why I wouldn't change anything and after every knee surgery am I right in thinking you had six yes three on each knee Mm -hmm. nice and even Mm -hmm. you kept on coming back for more is that just because of your love of the game or you felt you had unfinished business or what kept you coming back well the first one I came back Quick, you know, I came back. Obviously, like it was nothing. It was the first knee surgery, is um, lateral meniscal tear. I was on the court a couple of weeks later. Second one, I tore my college. Came back three weeks. I was on the court six days later. Came back to play my first tournament, and I won my first tournament in Memphis. And then did it again, but worse because it was microfracture surgery, which is you know wearing tear in the bone that drill a hole in the bone. And I was told I'll never play professional tennis again. I was in a wheelchair for three months and crutches for a month and a half non-weight bearing so then all of a sudden that was the first time it hit me where I heard you can't do this and as a me my personality if you say you can't do that I'm going to work even harder or I'm going to do it just because you told me I can't do it um, you know and so 
I did whatever it took for me to get back on the court, and I really did. I mean, you know, I was I was depressed. I was in a wheelchair, and my you know, I woke up in the morning after you know maybe a month and a half, two months. My dad had chopped the arm off my of the wheelchair, the arm rest. So he goes, today we're going on the tennis court. So, you know, I went on the tennis court and started hitting balls so I could swing with the racket, so he took off the armrest. So I started hitting balls and, um, you know, playing doubles with friends and I got happier and then he called it Tai Chi Master. Doing, I was doing Tai Chi in the wheelchair to get my mind, you know, to keep my mind going. And, um, you know, I just tried this, you know, it was actually a, a wheelchair tournament. I was actually going to ring up my dad to get him to call my agent at the time and see if it's possible can I play wheelchair tournaments in Florida actually it was pretty funny but I ended up playing that but anyway so I got back and did a rehab every single day got Bill Norris actually you know paid Bill Norris who was working with me every single day is coming to my house staying the whole day and we just did rehab four times a day and I was you know eating healthy and my leg was in the machine while I slept for like 10 hours a day um, and you know uh, I was also living in Miami, so enjoying my life a lot. And I also knew, if, you know, if I had a chance of coming back, I had to leave Miami number one. So I bought a ranch and built a U.S. Open hard court and a clay court and got a couple of horses and, you know, and then did the whole training thing and, you know, worked hard to come back and, you know, had a great year in 2003. Um, you know, had a great year in 2003 and, um, you know, final of Wimbledon and Davis Cup win and, and on this high, and then kind of just, to be honest, in 2004, lost some interest, you know, um, you know, for personal reasons, and just kind of didn't care so much, and ranking went down, and and then I, you know, kind of moved, got to Florida, I actually in Vegas, started work with Darren Cahill and Gil Reyes, and, you know, started training hard, and um, just was hungry again, and started playing some really good tennis and you know won a challenger and playing Hopman Cup and won my first match and you know the second game in the second match against France I tore my college in my right knee and then since then it never recovered um, I tried training and then came back and found I had torn it again so next January you know the surgery and was training again and then a third surgery was a microfracture surgery again so I was in a wheelchair and, and I was like I'm done it was not the physical part of knowing, you know, but I was just done mentally. I was mentally exhausted, mentally just fed up with getting therapy, icing my knee, waking up, strengthening my knee. I was done. I was just sick of it, and I just looked at my life and was like, "This, I'm just not happy, you know. So if I'm not happy, what's what's the point?" Um, and then that's why, you know, I was like, "I'm done. I'm done." Um, and um, and then happened to get a call like six months later from Jim Courier saying he's got an event he wants me to play. I'm like, man, I haven't hit a ball or done nothing. It's like, come on, we really want you to come out here. You know, the guys will it will be pretty easy. And so I was like, shit, uh, I've got to do some kind of training. So I rang up my my trainer when it was in San Diego. We did had a great run, you know, from 100 and wheel to eight in 2003. And I said, I've got to play an event. I said, I'm coming two months before. I'm going to start training again. So I started training again with him and played the event I had no pain so I was like we've got another tournament for him like shit so that's how it started I stayed in America and ended up on the senior tour and enjoying myself and started clothing line and, and that's how it happened do you know what you want out of life in the future or are you more a moment to moment kind of guy happy right now and I'm definitely trying to live in the moment be a lot more aware I've definitely realised that I was so not in the moment years ago um and as a kid, um, I just want to worry about now because my mind races so much. You know, my mind will be, I'll be doing something that I was thinking about the next day or two hours in time or three days or a week later. And I just want to be you know, thinking about now and wake up and, you know, I want to try and live that day to the max. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to go watch the sunrise, grab my dog, let's take him for a walk on the beach and watch the waves. Let's go for a surf. The surf's good. And maybe let's play some golf, get something to eat. And, you know, take my dog and watch the sunset again, and then you know, you know, go watch a movie. I just want to eat. I, want, I just promised myself that I won't do anything in my life unless I'm passionate about it. Um, I just felt like for the longest time, I just wasn't happy, and I did things that I wasn't truly happy um, at all. Um, even in, you know, back in the time where 
I used to change my car every two two months, get a different Ferrari, a different Lamborghini. And I, and I look back now and I've read so many books and so many spiritual books and 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 I definitely feel like I've become aware, you know, and definitely a lot more spiritual. And I, I was trying to, th- and I would think back and a lot of things in books would just hit me about, they would talk about certain things that were so me, you know, years ago. I'm like, what was the reason why I wanted another car? You know, like I had the latest Ferrari, but I got sick of it two weeks later and wanted another Ferrari because he had nothing to do with the Ferrari. You know, I was trying to, I wasn't fulfilled in my life. So I was trying to, I was buying materialistic things thinking that I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be fulfilled where it filled that void for like two weeks. And I'm like, oh, I've got it now. What, am, what now? I got the car. Oh, all right. Let's get a bigger house. Oh, I've got a bigger house, but it's, the other four rooms are empty. Why do I need a bigger house for? You know, there's so many things I did that I look back now. It's like I was just searching. You know, I was just a kid searching lost in life and, and, and just didn't get it. You know, I just, it's simple. I just didn't get it. Um, and, you know, I just want to, I'm just content and, uh, you know, I just want to make my life simple, which I have. I've made it very simple and I, I surround myself with people that are real and that have, you know, that have good vibes and any good energy and that, that are positive for my life. You know, and I've, and I've, I've cut out the people in my life that weren't positive. Um, and that's what I'm just trying to do. I'm just trying to, you know, still figure out this life and, and be happy and, and be content. And but but also, I mean, I love I would love a family. I'd love kids. You know, um, I, I definitely, especially in the last year and a half, two years, I I kind of stare at little kids and I love watching them play. And I kind of I'm like, oh, when am I going to have one? <laughs> so I that's why I think I spoil my dog so much. I rescued a dog and he's my child at the moment. So. I spoil him very much. Um. <laughs> Couple of questions for you about tennis at the moment. You played Sampras pretty much at his, his peak, and you played Federer, let's say Wimbledon 2003. It was the beginning of his peak, but he was still pretty unbeatable back then. Can you compare the two? Um, you almost could compare the two because, you know, they were, they were you know, almost kind of just after the same generation. Oh, well, well, towards the end of Pete, and then, like you said, then um, Roger started stepping up and really filling into who he is as a player. Um, see, the thing was with Pete is he was he had incredible weapons. He can hit a winner from anywhere. But I felt like that I could hold my serve comfortably. And when it got to four or five all, things would get tight and he would then be more consistent and he would rally more. But at the start, he would just go for a lot of shots. He would chip and charge, he'd go for it. But with Roger, every single point is, is tough. You know what I mean? It, it's, there wasn't anything easy where he'd just go for it. You know, Pete would, he would almost like save his energy, you know, and just run around, smack some second serves, and, he, you know, he'd hold serve easy and just take chances on the return of serve. But then five all, you can just see it. He would turn and be a little more different, whereas Roger, he's that way from the word go. You know what I mean? The pressure's always there. So that's the difference. And he makes guys feel that they need to play. You have to step up, you know, and take it to another... You know, there's guys where, you know, at that one stage where they felt like they had to do something incredibly amazing to beat him in a tiebreaker. They they really pushed it. So they went for an extra crazy shot or a bigger second serve and they got out of their comfort zone. And Pete did that at times in a tiebreaker, but Roger does that from the start, you know. Wimbledon this year and Olympics you can almost consider the two alongside one another what are your thoughts on it do you think anybody could do the double Wimbledon Wimbledon Olympic double both on the grass at Wimbledon yeah absolutely there's no reason there's no reason why I mean you know I personally don't see anyone but those top four guys winning any of those events both of them um and look Definitely more of the top three guys can win those two back-to-back. Can Murray win Wimbledon? Yes. Can he win Olympics? Yes. He just hasn't taken it to the next... You know, when he gets those big... I, I've picked him for a couple of Grand Slam and he's gotten the final one and the semi and the other one. He has what it takes. And, and, and this year he's beaten those guys in, you know, I think it was in Doha or something or he won. And, so he's got what it takes, but... Um, uh, I would pick, you know, Djokovic, Federer, or Nadal 
to go back to back. I wouldn't pick Murray to go back to back. I would pick him t- to win one of them, but not go back to back. I don't want to say that's not possible, but you know, obviously, if he all of a sudden he came out and won a Grand Slam, he'd be a different player, confidence-wise. So I don't know. I've spoken to a um, few players about Murray's relationship with Lendl, and generally, opinions have been pretty positive. You know, can't hurt, you know, all of that sort yeah. of thing. But I spoke to Marit Safin about it, and he said he thought it was a terrible idea, particularly because of. He was comparing it to when he employed Mats Verlander, a former multiple Grand Slam champion, as coach, and he said that was that was a disaster for various reasons. You had Pat Cash as your coach for a short period yeah. of time, sort of. So you've been in that position of what? Do you, look, what's your Pat take Cash on for that me relationship? Brought positive things to the game, and you're looking. You know, Marat. I love the guy. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. But let's face it, he's crazy, you know, and, and it's very difficult. I believe the personality that Marat has, it's better for him to have someone who was more like his friend on the side of the court, someone that would pick up his rackets, someone that would take care of the courts, book the courts, book his practice. I think he needed more, because he was so talented, someone to keep him it was happy. very difficult for someone to be connected to him and tell him what to do on the court. Let's face it, he was... You know that's why people love him. People like list, love listening to his his conference. You know his his um, after uh, his, his match uh, conferences. But it's different to Murray. I think I think that's going to benefit Murray. Um, I don't know him that well. Nowhere near as well as I know. I don't know him hardly at all compared like how I know Marat. But I think that's positive for him. I, I believe he needs someone like Ivan who's been there as a champion and who could speak to him. You know, I, I think it'll be easier. I can see maybe it's easier to speak to Murray than it would to um, to Marat. You know what I mean? So I, I think it's good. Mark Philippus is there, a man with a big game and a big heart to go with it. You can watch him play at the Statter or Masters Tennis at the Royal Albert Hall in London in December, along with John McEnroe, Tim Henman and Pat Cash. We'll be back next week to look back at Wimbledon and introduce another big-name guest right here on the Tennis Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 